Hello, coaches and basketball enthusiasts. Welcome to Coach Carvalho Podcast, a podcast that explores the world of statistically-based basketball strategies and bold training methods. In today's episode, we have a truly special guest who embodies the very essence of basketball, Coach Bill Ivey, a mentor who has dedicated his life to coaching and teaching the game. Coach Ivy, thank you for joining in our show today, and a warm welcome to you. Thank you, Walter. It's an honor, and I'm so uh, pleased to see you doing this. So it's uh, it's a wonderful venture. Thank you. Coach, let's get started. Can you share a bit about your journey in the world of basketball and how your family's background influenced your career in coaching? Yes, uh, it, it comes completely from my dad. Um he was uh, actually a four-sport letterman at Talladega High School, a small town in Alabama, and um, his career uh, was basketball, played basketball at the University of Alabama. That was his way out of a small mill town, and so I grew up uh, with basketball in my background, going to games, listening to him coach. He loved to coach, you know, as a fan. Uh, my first love was baseball, played baseball most of my life, but picked up basketball probably in about the fourth or fifth grade, and um, basketball became my first love. Uh, base- baseball started it, and then basketball uh, surpassed it, and so uh, it, got, it all goes back to my dad, and uh, then I think his um, wanting to be a coach, but uh, needing security and more money than he grew up with. Uh, it passed on to me. So basketball is in your DNA. It is. It is. As a coach, you've had success at both the high school and college levels. Can you tell us about some of the key lessons you've learned and the differences you've noticed between coaching at these levels? I'll add one to that. I actually had three of the best years of my life coaching middle school boys. Um, So that was fun. Um, you know, Walter, you and I both agree with this. The fundamentals are the same at every level. Uh, I saw a, an article about Victor Wambayama, Wambayama, and, uh, he had a, when he was six years old, he had a coach who said, you're not getting out of this program until you can dribble the basketball. So he's seven, four now, and he can dribble the basketball. Um, so uh, the fundamentals are the same at every level, and the lack of fundamentals are characteristic at every level. Uh, we do not do a good job of raising kids with high-level skill sets, at least in this country. And so, uh, obviously, at the high school level, um, I'm afraid to say there's there's a lot of recruiting going on, but in general, you're taking the kids that are in your school system. Uh, at the college level, it's pretty much all about recruiting. Uh, I know that one of your great strengths was to recruit athletes and turn them into basketball players, but now now there's so little teaching time available at the college level, it's hard. So um, it's I see less and less fundamentals at all level, but the fundamentals never change from first grade all the way up to NBA. They're pretty much the same. They just get more complex. In your opinion, do the rules governing high school and college basketball have a detrimental impact on the game? Well, in Alabama, one of the problems with basketball is 
football kind of dominates the fall, meaning that basketball coaches often get started late. They're waiting on their football players. Sometimes when, when my son was a senior in high school, his high school went all the way to the state championship game and won it um, in football. That meant they had to play for about a month or six weeks with several JV players on their varsity to fill in for the kids that were playing football. So football is a an impediment in Alabama, not because nobody likes football, but because of the way the scheduling is and the football coaches kind of rule. Um, so in Alabama, the system is not geared against basketball. It's just that it's um, the football season interferes. But no, I, I don't see any any issues with the rules at any level, uh, except now with all the transfer portal stuff going on at the at this college level. We don't know what's what to expect from one year to the next. In both the FIBA World Games and the NBA, there is a perception that international players often exhibit superior fundamentals compared to their American counterparts. How do you view this observation? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, conundrum because if you go back all the way to young players, first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, that's where they need to be learning the skills. The, the college coach, you would hope, doesn't happen to have to, to develop skills so much as build team concepts. But the shame of it is, uh, even in the NBA, they're having to do a lot of teaching of skills because we just don't do that in this country. Everything's so fragmented. You've got recreational ball you've got um travel ball and it you know people who are are handling those teams are not qualified to teach skills american basketball is currently being challenged by international basketball because they are producing uh players of different heights and different physical attributes with much more make much better skills than the American players. And, and, and some of them uh, have become stars in the NBA. What are your thoughts about that? Well, you and I have talked about this a lot. You've coached around the world and you understand that in most places, the academic track and the athletic track are separated uh, in that the school itself is about education. And then the clubs are about soccer and basketball and other sports. So there is no room for uh, crossover or hypocrisy. Um, in this country, we try to combine sports with the uh, education that children get. And so uh, oftentimes the, the coaches are not qualified. They don't have much time. Uh, and so my, my personal opinion is the American system is not geared to teaching skills, whereas the club system that exists for most of the world, uh, players are learning skills at an early age. And um, I guess Dirk Nowitzki is probably the first person that I remember, uh, you know, he, he had the skills of a of a, a wing and he was seven feet, one inches tall and uh, could shoot the fadeaway jumper and handle the ball and stuff. And, and it was remarkable to watch him. Before that, that Sabonis was probably the, the pioneer, and he was so huge, uh, but we just didn't get to see him at his best because of his uh, prior injuries. How do you think the three-point shot influences player development and playing styles in the United States? It is noticeable that many teams persist in taking three-point shots, even when their shooting accuracy is lower, potentially missing out on opportunities to maximize their possessions. What is your perspective on this phenomenon? 
That's a great question. I, I, um, I did not grow up with a three-point line. Uh, in, in the early years of my coaching, we didn't have the three-point line. So the three-point three line has always been a little bit of a mysteri mysterious thing to me. Uh, but I'll say this. Um, my personal opinion is most players are not geared to shoot three-pointers off of plays. Uh, penetrate and kick. Uh, they can, they can shoot. A lot of players can shoot that catch and shoot uh, play. Very few players can score threes off the dribble. Uh, so we allow too many of them to fire it up there. Um, I think there are very few players you can actually run plays for who will hit threes consistently. Most of them come off the you know drive and pitch. Um, and I don't have a problem with that. If you attack the basket and somebody stops you and you kick it out for a three then I think that's okay. Um, but learn where their success line is. You know, you need to teach players, you know, you're really good from 15 feet on end. Uh, I, I would not be shooting a lot of three-pointers, you know, if I were you. So it helps players if they know when they have a green light and when they have a red light. But as you pointed out, too many of them have a green light when they're really not very good shooters. Coach, can you share your thoughts on the widespread focus of the pick and roll in most teams' strategies? You know, I learned a long time ago um, that when you run a pick and roll, uh, you're bringing four players together. You're bringing two defenders and you're bringing uh, two offensive players together. And oftentimes, if you don't have a lot of skill offensively, you're just creating uh, chaos. You're, you're leading to turnovers. Uh, by the same token, the, the dribble handoff is, is essentially the same thing. Greatly suited pick and roll because they're so skilled. Uh, I think of Stockton and Malone as kind of the classic pair. Uh, so there are players in the NBA that can handle the pick and roll or the dribble handoff well. Uh, I, I think in the, in the WNBA, it's the same way. But most kids, my philosophy was spreading the court, passing and cutting, passing and screening away, and just a lot of activity, um, trying to swing the ball from the, the ball side to the weak side as fast as possible, and not so much uh, screen and roll. I found early in my career that I had very few kids that could execute that. And that now the dribble handoff is so popular, and I, I want to throw up every time I see that. Coach, as numerous teams are adopting similar plays as their opponents, how do they intend to differentiate themselves and achieve success, especially when up against teams with superior talent? You know, you and I have known each other for so long, I can read your mind. And um, what you're really describing is human nature. It doesn't matter if it's business or uh, entertainment. There's a lot of copycats out there. You know, a successful commercial will lead to other commercials like that one. Uh, people are there are very few people who are originals. Uh, the great ones, whether they are inventors or writers, they take all of the techniques and the skill sets from other people and they they combine them internally and, and make it their own. Um, we are a nation and a world of copycats, Walter. Um, I'll give you one example that I saw early in my career. Bobby Knight won a national championship in 1976 running motion offense and just really hard-nosed man-to-man uh, -man defense. So the next thing you know, everybody's running motion offense with really hard-nosed you know, hard man-to-man uh, -man defense. Well, that might have worked for Bobby Knight because he had about five NBA players on that team. Uh, but going back to your point, 
you have to adapt to your players and you have to be confident enough to create your own systems. Um, so there are very few originals out there. Most of what I see is copycat stuff. I don't care if it's at the NBA level or in, in middle school. It's people copying other people. Um, and that's, I think that's human nature. I don't, I don't agree with it necessarily, but it's just the way it is. I hold the belief that employing identical strategies and emulating other playing styles only favor teams with superior talent. That's true. Um, if everybody's running the same thing, the team that's got the most talent or size or shooting ability or whatever is typically going to win. And so uh, the, the flip side of that, Walter, is if you have superior talent and you're running the same thing everybody else is, they may be able to stay close to you. You know, you may not be able to blow them out because you're doing the same stuff they do. And the game's going to be 65 to 60 instead of 100 to 70 or something. So I agree with you on that. Coach, we'd love to hear your insights on the playing styles of teams in both college and the NBA. How do you perceive the differences or similarities between these levels of play? You know, I've I've gotten to the point where, uh, other than with a few coaches, I can hardly watch college basketball anymore. It used to be my my love, of course, um, but now it seems that the the uh, the college coaches are moving around the players like robots. They don't trust the players, um, and so everybody does the same thing. Um, And it's actually pretty boring. I enjoy watching the NBA more because the players are allowed to use their talents. And, yes, there's still a lot of gaps in talent there, but most of those guys are at the top of the food chain, whether they're Europeans or Americans or, or uh, Latinos or whatever. So I've, I've kind of gotten bored with the college game except during March Madness. Now, I will say an example of something I do enjoy Uh, is watching Oates, what Oates, Nate Oates at Alabama is trying to do. I looked at his roster today, just coincidentally. His roster is slowly but surely becoming uh, almost across the board. He's got a, he's got two or three bigs. He's got two or three small kids, but the rest of them are all six, seven, six, eight, six, nine, and he wants them to be positionless players. It goes back to you saying he wants them to be specialists of the sport. So, um, I don't know if he'll ever achieve that, but that's his goal is to have positionless players. And um, uh, he's trying to find kids that are extremely long that can play defense and play offense and shoot the three. Um, but there, there are very few coaches at the college level that I'm intrigued by. I really want to watch their games. Um, it's, it's pretty boring. Coach, I've been hearing concerns from college coaches regarding the coachability of high school players making the transition to the college level. How do you view this issue, and what are your thoughts on the challenges it may pose? Yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, it's, uh, I know that uh, if anything drives uh, Nick Saban out of football early, earlier than he would like, it'll be uh, the transfer portal because his philosophy is, you know, that kids need to go through some adversity um, in order to become great players or great people. Um, the Here's what I'm afraid of is that the, the kids are going to flock to schools where there's kind of a lack of discipline because that's what they're accustomed to, Walter, in AAU, um, is that they when it becomes a little tough, 
they would um, transfer to a school where it's not so tough. Uh, funny story, I heard Wimp Sanderson talking about, former Alabama coach, Robert Ory was one of his great players, and he asked Robert not that long ago, Robert, if the transfer portal existed today, would you have stayed with me? He said, no, I don't think so, coach. But then he said, but my mom would have made me. Um, so there are some kids that have that loyalty or their moms make them stay or whatever. But the the trend is to, I think, go where it's the easiest, you know, not the hardest. And sometimes kids don't want to be taught because they've never had to deal with that kind of discipline. Do you think the necessity to adapt is driving changes in coaching styles with coaches shifting from traditional teaching roles to more leadership-oriented positions? You know, I really don't know enough about the NBA. I could just use one example is that, you know, Greg Popovich is into his 70s, which I find astonishing that a man has the energy to coach at that level in his 70s. But everything I hear about Coach Popovich, and now he has Wimbayama, um, he absolutely loves teaching. Uh, and he is unique. Um, I do think there are lots of Popovich uh, disciples out there that do love to teach. Um, I sometimes wonder if the, if the main teaching in this country is not going on at the NBA level because those guys come so unprepared. Um, but I do think there are people in the NBA that are great teachers. Um, obviously, there are some that are, are just what I call front runners. They want to get talent and, and coach it, and that's all they want to do. But there are plenty of these guys around like Popovich and some of his former assistants out there who are, are great teachers, and they stay in it, even though they're dealing with men. Uh, and in the WNBA, women, they they still love the teaching part of it. Coach, uh, about coaching, uh, can you share some advice for young aspiring coaches who want to pursue a career as coaches? We know one advantage that young people have today that you and I didn't have coming along is YouTube or just the Internet in general. Uh, I had to depend on books and coaching clinics and stuff just to learn the game uh, at a higher level. Um, and so, you know, I would encourage every young person out there to if there are camps to work those camps, uh, you know, there, there are fewer and fewer of those. But if there are camps, work the camps, be around the college coaches, soak up everything you can. Uh, there's no excuse for not learning the game and learning how to teach skills when people like you are out there offering all kinds of advice, all kinds of skills to be taught. Um, as you and I know, there is a perfect way to play the game. You know, it's like ballet. There is a perfect way to make a move in ballet, and there is a perfect way to handle the basketball. There's generally a perfect way to shoot, depending on your body type. Um, defensive skills are pretty standardized, and there's no reason that a young person can't learn that, if, even if they weren't a, aren't a former player. You know, a player should go in there with at least a foundation of what, what it takes to win, but um, there's no excuse for not having a high level of of, of skill as a coach and being able to transfer that to your players anymore. So um, you have to be, I think, a lifelong learner, whether you're uh, any kind of educator has to be a lifelong learner. Coach, 
Do you believe that coaches have the necessary preparation to instruct players during their early developmental stage, especially considering the potential lack of comprehensive training and familiarity with teaching methodologies typically emphasized in physical education programs? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, although I, my experience in the United States was a lot of PE programs were not well run that the coaches Correct. simply exploited that PE major to not do, not do a lot of work. Um, I don't think that's all bad. Uh, what I'm saying is it's not all bad that we don't have as many PE teachers coaching basketball. I, I never taught PE a day in my life, um, but basketball was my passion. So I learned it, uh, but I don't, I don't know where we need to go, but, we, we've got to get away from the recreational stuff and we've got to get away from the, um, the travel ball, but I don't see it ending anytime soon. You know, it's like a, a disease. Um, so it's, it's, it's not much fun right now. Um, you and I both have, have, uh, swum against the tide or swam against the tide of that craziness. And it's, uh, everybody's trying to keep up with the Joneses and, and put their kids in, travel by when they can't even play. So uh, it's pretty sad. Having dedicated our lives to the sport of basketball, how do you foresee the future of the game? What insights can you provide regarding its evolving path? Well, I'm going to talk backwards first. In retrospect, it's all about the relationships, isn't it? You know, we, yeah. we think about the wins and the, you know, but how many trophies you have on your trophy case, it's the, it's about what you're going to be able to take into heaven with you. They're not going with you. Um, so <laughs> it's it, if you're clinging to the trophies, you know, you, you, you better let go of them. Uh, it is about relationships and changing lives. Uh, the future of the sport, um, you know, Walter, there's always uh, a chance for things to change. I think right now the the momentum is in favor of this informal stuff, but more and more people, whether it's the American Academy of Pediatrics or Dr. James Andrews here in Birmingham, who's a, maybe the top sports uh, medicine surgeon in the world, um, they're speaking out against uh, specialization. They're speaking out against uh, uh, travel ball, and maybe that tide will turn in the next generation you and i probably won't see it though you know it's it's so ingrained now um but heck i grew up playing park ball like baseball you know and we just wanted to win the game so we could get a free snow cone at the concession stand uh, <laughs> and so you know it was a, there was an innocence to that and and we taught each other how to play you know the coaches didn't know much but we passed it around among ourselves about how to break your glove in and how to wear your cap and all that stuff, you know? Um, and so the formalization of it, uh, when it's done by people that don't know what they're doing is not very good. Uh, but may, maybe in the next generation, uh, there will be a backlash against travel ball. That would be my hope. We deeply appreciate your participation in our show today. Your invaluable insights and lifelong dedication to the game have been truly enlightening. The floor is yours for any closing thoughts you'd like to share. You and I have known each other since around 1985. Most people in the United States probably weren't born in 1985. So 
Uh, oh my God! <laughs> a long time, and I appreciate you, and I and I'm honored to be on this program, and I wish you all the best with it. Thank you, Coach Ivy, and a heartfelt thank you to our listeners for being part of this episode. If you have enjoyed today's content, we encourage you to leave your likes and comments, and consider subscribing to our podcast for more engaging discussions. As we part ways for now. Remember that the journey towards excellence is perpetual. Keep guiding and coaching until our paths cross once more. This is Coach Carvalho signing off.